Welcome to Vetsplanation. I'm Tyler, or you can call me Shugs. I love being able to educate my pet parents on what's going on with their furry little loved one. But as an emergency veterinarian, I'm usually running around from critical case to critical case and don't always have the time to be able to tell you what I've learned in 25 years of experience in just those short two minutes. I'm hoping with this podcast, I'm going to be able to help you guys understand what your veterinarian is trying to tell you. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for those who got through congestive heart failure. I know that is a, that is a hard one. There's just a lot that goes into it. Um, today I chose just this crazy disease. So I am from Southern California and I did live in Northern California for quite a long time, but I was mostly in Southern California for most of my life. And then I moved up to, to the Pacific Northwest and I had really never heard very much about this disease, but uh, when I got up here, that was, I, I've seen quite a lot of it since then. So we're going to talk about salmon poisoning today. So we're going to talk about where do you see it? Uh, what are the causes of it? Who's affected by it? Uh, how we diagnose it, clinical signs, and also how we treat it. So first of all, where do we find this? Usually it's going to be in the Pacific Northwest. So it's usually in Oregon. Uh, you can go as far south as just in like San Francisco area and all the way up to Alaska. But it's typically on the, in the Pacific Northwest. And this is usually going to be freshwater fish that you're going to see this in. So it's not just salmon, and we'll get to that in just a second here, but it's uh, usually going to be in streams, lakes, anywhere you're going to have freshwater fish that are going to be there. So who is affected by this? Typically, it's going to be dogs who are affected. There, as, as far as I could find, there's never been a cat that they've like officially diagnosed with uh, salmon poisoning. It's always been dogs. It can also happen in other in other animals too. Though, like in foxes, coyotes, raccoons, bears, uh, they can all potentially get salmon poisoning as well. Now, here is the crazy part: how does salmon poisoning happen? So many things have to happen in order for salmon poisoning to occur, but yet, yet it does. So somehow it always does happen. Like it's very common for us to see salmon poisoning. One of the things that uh, I always ask about on intake is, is there any way that your pet could have gotten into any sort of freshwater fish? Because salmon poisoning is just that common. So it starts out that an egg has to be eaten by this bacteria. This little tiny bacteria then is eaten by a snail. The snail is eaten by a fluke, which is kind of like a flat worm. The fluke is eaten by a fish, which then makes a cyst inside the fish, so that when the dog comes and eats it, it eats that cyst, which then hatches open, has the fluke that has the bacteria that then makes the dog sick. But all of those things have to happen. Like you have to, you have to have a fluke, you have to have a snail, you have to have the bacteria, you have to have the fish, you have to have the dog in order for all of those things to occur to make salmon poisoning happen. Now, if anybody picked up on this, salmon poisoning has no poison in it. There's no actual poison. Nobody's put anything in there. Like typically we think of poisons as going to be like, you know, medications or it's going to be um, antifreeze or it's going to be uh, dr- lots of different drugs. There's no 
actual poisoning to salmon poisoning. That's just the name of, of the disease is called salmon poisoning, but nobody's put any chemicals or anything into the, the bacteria or the snail or the fish or the dog or, um, it's just called salmon poisoning. Now, it had mentioned that this isn't just salmon. So who can be affected? Like which fish are affected by this? Like I said, this is usually going to be any freshwater fish. So this is salmon, trout, lampreys, sculpins, red side shiners, shad, sturgeons, candlefish, large suckers, and something that's not even a fish, the Pacific giant salamander. Now, I have never seen one of these Pacific giant salamanders, so if somebody has one of these Pacific giant salamanders, um, I, I want to see that. Somebody show it to me. I want to know what this thing looks like. Anyways, now what part of the fish is actually the toxic portion of the fish? So it's actually all of it. Like we've had dogs that have only eaten the scales. We've had dogs that have drank, like licked the blood off of the ground, the guts, the tail, the head, the insides, the meat, any part of it, any part of it is potentially going to cause salmon toxicity. So ideally, we just want to make sure they can't get into any portion of it. But that's really difficult because most of the time, fishermen will just like gut their fish, throw the, the, you know, whatever's left over out onto the grass, or they'll put it into like back into the water for the other fish and stuff to eat off of. But then your dog comes along and then grabs it, eats it, and sometimes you don't even know. So a lot of times you'll even hear me ask, like, is there any way you've been anywhere near freshwater fish, anywhere near a river, anywhere near a stream? And the other misnomer is sometimes people think that there's a salmon, there's only one salmon uh, spawning time. So that's when you'll see salmon poisoning is during that salmon spawning time. But you have to remember there's actually like different types of salmon. We've already talked about the fact that it's not just salmon. It's also trout and all these other types of fish that that are not just out during that one period of time. So it can be any time that they could actually get this salmon poisoning. Now, what does it look like? Usually after they've ingested the salmon, it's going to take about three to seven days before they're actually going to show clinical signs. That's just the average. So this can actually be anywhere from two days to up to 33 days sometimes before they actually show uh, clinical signs from salmon poisoning. And usually what what people will see at home is that they become really lethargic and they don't want to eat. They're just like really dumpy and, and won't eat at all. And for a certain types of breeds of dogs, like if you have a Labrador and it's not eating, like that's that is concerning, right? Like my Labrador misses a meal. I have her into the vet where I have her into work immediately because I'm concerned, very concerned that there is something wrong versus my other dog. If she didn't eat, I'd be like, eh, you're probably okay. But you know, certain breeds of dogs, are, you'll know your dog well enough to know that when they're not eating, like there's a big problem there. The other sign sometimes too, is that they'll have diarrhea. The most classic signs that we actually see once they get into the hospital is that they have the diarrhea, their lymph nodes will be enlarged, and they'll have a fever. And their fever is usually only there for the first couple of days when they start showing their clinical signs. So the first one to two days. And then after that, it actually goes back down to normal. Their temperature goes back down to normal, which makes this a little bit hard because sometimes 
you know, if it's a normal temperature, like, well, maybe it can't be salmon poisoning because that typically does have a fever with it. But we might have just missed that time period when that fever was occurring. But these temperatures can get really high. I mean, they can get up to like 107 sometimes. They're so high. But usually they're around 104, 105. And that's another reason why we start asking, like, is there any way that they could have gotten into any salmon? And then, like I said, their lymph nodes will be enlarged. Usually those lymph nodes will be on the outside of the body. So it's going to be like under their neck, uh, by their shoulders, their back of their legs, and in their groin area that we're going to look for those enlarged lymph nodes. But I will tell you my very first case that I had actually did not have an enlarged lymph nodes. It did not have a fever and it did not have diarrhea. The very first case that I saw just had enlarged lymph nodes inside its abdomen so inside its belly that and that's when i started thinking what are the different causes it's going to cost us of this very young dog we had gotten a fecal on it once i noticed that the dog wasn't the owners told me that it did not have diarrhea at home but it was having diarrhea when we used our thermometer to be able to check its temperature and once I noticed like the fact that it has diarrhea, it also had its enlarged lymph nodes. We did a fecal on it and we saw the salmon flukes. So that's how I knew that this dog had salmon poisoning. So like I said, I saw in that dog salmon poisoning because we had taken a fecal on it. So what we do is we usually take a fecal sample. We'll look at, a, look at it under the microscope and see are we able to see salmon flukes? And we aren't always going to see them. That's the thing. They are intermittent shedders, meaning sometimes they come out in the poop and sometimes they don't. And if they don't, then we're not going to see them. If they do, then we'll have a pretty good, good diagnosis there. But other things that you might see at home too are going to be things like vomiting. Um, you might see really bloody stool or even that they're drinking a lot and urinating a lot. And so other things that we're going to do just kind of based on what you might be seeing at home might be doing like blood work and x-rays. X-rays is because a lot of these guys, we just want to make sure that there's no signs of them having a foreign body. It's not going to help us with the diagnosis of salmon poisoning unless we know that it had gotten into salmon poisoning or that you tell us that you had been by a stream or a lake. That's going to be the key information for us to actually instead of doing x-rays or potentially besides also doing x-rays is to do blood work. So on blood work, we're looking for a couple of things. The most important thing that we're looking for on that blood work to determine if this is salmon poisoning is the platelet count. With the platelet count that the platelets are actually the very first thing that go to when you like your, when you have a cut. So if you were to cut yourself Platelets are these little tiny like protein thing that goes over to that cut and it starts telling the body to send more things to help stop the bleeding and to clot your blood. So those platelets are really important, but those platelets become low when you start having salmon poisoning. Usually they're not like super low. They're just about half of what they normally should be. But I've definitely had salmon poisonings that were actually like so low that they had no platelets left. So it's, it's always hard to tell whether this is something that's a true salmon poisoning versus something else called ITP, which I'll get into at a later podcast. But either one of those is possible. It could be, it could be either one. So we're always hoping to find those salmon flukes so that we have a definitive diagnosis. 
But even so, if we see that the platelets are low, you know, we have a suspicion for it potentially being salmon poisoning, we're going to probably start treating for it if that's the case. There is also some weird neurological things that can happen with salmon poisoning. Um, so they can get what's called granulomatous meningitis. And that's where that they will have, uh, the infection basically go into their spinal fluid. Sometimes you can see that on blood work that you'll see that their white blood cells are really elevated from that when they're actually showing neurological signs as well. So that could be like, they could just be like really, really dull and out of it to like almost to the point of being comatose. They could have twitching. They could have seizures. They could have really bad neck pain. Uh, but it's, it's just not a common thing that they get. Like it's less than 20% of them that, that have been reported to have had this, but still, still possible. The other thing that you can do too to diagnose this is that some people will actually take a sample of the lymph nodes that's enlarged because sometimes you can see the bacteria on there and know that it's going to be salmon poisoning as well. But that's also saying that we know for sure that that those lymph nodes are enlarged. Because like I said, on my very first case, those lymph nodes were not enlarged and we were not able to tell. Once we've now diagnosed the dog, we've talked to you guys about you know, whether salmon poisoning is even a possibility, and we've determined, yes, this is a possibility. We've been by a lake or a stream, or I've even had a weird case of like, somebody actually saw a bird, an eagle, drop part of the fish in their backyard. They did not live by a stream or a lake. They had never, they don't take this dog outside, like out of the, the yard. They had only, like this dog only was ever in the backyard. And they happened to see that a fish fell into their yard and the dog ate it. They didn't know what kind of fish. All they saw was like a flapping thing and saw that the fish, the dog ate it. So they didn't know if it was salmon. They had no clue. In those instances, those are a little bit hard because if you bring them into the vet clinic right away, the chances that we're going to make them vomit is, it's hard to know. It really is going to depend on the doctor that you're talking to. My concern with making them vomit is if there's fish bones, I don't want those fish bones to get stuck anywhere that I'm not going to be able to get to. So in the esophagus, if I can't get to it, which is usually the case, um, I'm not going to want to make them vomit. So I usually do not make them vomit, but other people have, and they've done it successfully and not had a problem. So you always have to ask which doctor, you know, what that, what that doctor's opinion is, whether they would make them vomit versus just treating them. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. So for treatment, once you've diagnosed them, now we're going to decide what treatments we're going to use. The mainstay of this is usually going to be an antibiotic. So we're trying to kill that bacteria that's in there. We usually use doxycycline or tetracycline. Uh, those are 
basically just like the antibiotic or this injectable one, which is called oxytetracycline. If we're going to be sending you home with medication, like let's say your pet is really not that bad. They're not really sick. I mean, they like, they don't feel well, but they're not terrible. Then a lot of times then I will just send home with doxycycline and then we will if they're hospitalized, that's when we're going to do oxytetracycline as the injectable one. Because it actually has to go into a bag and have to be given over a period of time. So it's not just going to be like a simple injection. It's actually like IV that we're giving it for, for over a period of time. But typically it's going to be that they are put on that antibiotic for at least seven days. Some people do seven days. Some people do 14 days. Again, it's just going to kind of depend on, on your veterinarian. And then the other thing is that, you know, just immediately we're going to also treat symptoms too. We're also going to treat if they're vomiting, we're going to treat them with medication if they're having diarrhea, but we also need to kill that fluke as well. And so we give a dewormer. Uh, most people will give a prosquantal, which is an injectable dewormer to kill them. Some people will give it as a pill or some people, there's also another medication that you can give, a flea medication that you can give. I'm sorry, since I am an ER vet, I just like can never remember all of the flea medications to remember what each one of them does. But I know that there's supposed to be a flea medication that you can give to kill them off as well. I just, I just cannot remember what that is. And then, uh, like I said, if they, if they're really not like that bad and we're going to send them home, then sometimes they will just give them some fluids under the skin versus if they are pretty dehydrated, then we're going to want to hospitalize them and put them on IV fluids so that, that way we can try to get them hydrated as much as possible. In general, as long as you can get them in pretty quickly or when signs first start to occur, uh, most of these dogs do just fine. They, they do great. And are able to return home with no long-term complications and just go home on medication for about a week and make sure they do okay. But there have been, there have been reported studies that say about 14% of dogs will die from it. And I, it really seems to be that this is going to be more those really bad dogs, those ones that are just, they're really, really sick and weren't able to get in before they got that bad. Or, or the ones that have that meningitis that I was talking about, like things that are usually um, a lot worse than what we normally see. Most of these dogs, like I said, even if they're hospitalized, they do really well. If they go home, they usually still do really well, just as long as they're on the appropriate medications. But if they aren't able to be treated, then death can occur within about five to 10 days, depending on how bad it is. So we do want to make sure that anytime we see any of these symptoms that we get them in uh, right away. Now, how do we prevent this? Uh, really, it's just like making sure they can't get into the the fish as much as possible. Uh, there are no vaccines that we can give that are going to be specific for this. They do say that the ones that do recover from this, that they do have um, some immunity to it. So that re getting reinfected with that same type of strain of bacteria is not as likely, but there are lots of different types of strains of that bacteria. So there's definitely still a possibility that they can get infected and get saving poisoning again, just from another strain. 
So most of this is just prevention, trying to make sure that the dog doesn't get into any salmon, um, usually by keeping them on a leash when they're at the lakes or streams, which is hard, I know, because your lab wants to run around and jump in the water, right? But just trying to keep a, a really good watch on them. If you do see that they've gotten into salmon poisoning or salmon, uh, I actually had a, a time where we went to the lake and this guy brought his three dogs and immediately the Labrador, it's always the Labrador, immediately the Labrador goes over and and eats a salmon head. Like, And I, I went to go grab the from the dog when I saw that what the dog was doing and I realized that there was a salmon head that somebody had just like thrown in the bushes nearby and the dog had already swallowed it. It was gone. And so I told the guy, I was like, your dog just swallowed a salmon head and he was off. He went immediately over to his vet because uh, he was going to try to make them make a vomit. I did not tell him that I was a veterinarian because I was on vacation at that time, nor did I even have stuff to make him vomit. But I'm just saying, I was still just letting him know that that happened. But some people, instead of making them vomit, will just treat. So just give the doxycycline. So that way we just know that if it does have the um, salmon poisoning, that hopefully we're already treating it for it. Some people also feed just the salmon. So lots of people go fishing out here and they'll catch the salmon and then you'll gut it, give those pieces to the dogs, or they'll give pieces of the salmon itself to the dogs. Uh, but it's got to be cooked. So no raw salmon. It's got to be cooked salmon. and Or you can also deep freeze it. It's got to be deep, deep frozen for two weeks in order to make sure it's okay for them to be able to eat. If that's the only way it's going to kill it off is freezing, deep freezing or cooking uh, that bacteria and those flukes to kill them off. And that's it. This is one of those cases that's really nice with salmon poisoning that most of them do well as long as we can diagnose them pretty quickly and we can get them the appropriate treatments. They usually will leave the hospital. They'll usually be able to go home and finish the rest of their treatments at home and they're not going to have long-term effects from it the majority of the time, which is fantastic. Still a crazy, crazy disease. I mean, again, I just don't know how you have just like the you have all of those things have to happen in order for them to get salmon poisoning, but it happens all the time. All right. If you guys have any questions for me, please let me know. I'm trying to get a website up right now. So hopefully that'll be up soon. And uh, that way you guys will be able to email me if you have questions and I'll get that up and let you know what my email is. And otherwise, uh, I just really appreciate you guys listening and I hope you have a great day. Please remember that this podcast is for informational purposes only. This is not meant to be a diagnosis for your pet. If you have questions about diagnostics or about treatment options, please talk to your veterinarian about those things. Remember, we are all practicing veterinary medicine and medicine is not an exact science. Your veterinarian may have different treatment options. If you like our podcast, please leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you'll be able to hear all the future episodes. Thank you again and I wish you and your pet well.